This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. And the title for this morning's message is The Lord's Supper, Sign and Seal of the New Covenant. And the Word of God says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please join me in a moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this uh, so, so important passage, not only in this book, but in the entire New Testament and even the entire Bible, uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would teach us your word. We pray that you would help us to understand the depths and the meaning and the significance of what we do every Sunday in this church, Father, and why we do it, and why it matters. And so, Father, we pray that you would clear our minds of all of the cares and the distractions of this world. There are so many things in this world and in this life that can take our attention away from why we are here those things can wait. This is your time. And we pray that like Mary, we would sit at the feet of Christ and that we would give you our undivided attention and that you would speak to us through your word and teach us more of you. And in the end, Father, we do pray that you would make us even just a little more like Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, um, as I said in the prayer, this morning I'll be talking about uh, one of the most important passages in this book. It's hard to say what's the most important passage. Uh, you know, obviously the entire book of 1 Corinthians is the Word of God. It, it all matters. It's all important. But this is a extremely significant text in the book of 1 Corinthians, in fact, it is an extremely significant text in the entire New Testament and even in the entire Bible because it has to do with the Lord's Supper. One of the two sacraments that we practice as uh, the church, and it is the only passage of Scripture that explains the Lord's Supper. You know, the Lord's Supper is only recorded in four places. The other three are in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there, we're simply it's simply described how it was implemented by Christ. 
right? It's just the recording of what Jesus did and what he said. But in this passage, Paul is explaining the significance of the Lord's Supper, why it matters, what we are doing, why it's important. For that reason, I have been uh, looking forward to teaching on this this section of, of this book uh, ever since the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians. Ever since we started it, I have been looking forward to this passage, and so I am, uh, I am thankful that I am continuing to work through 1 Corinthians, and that we are now dealing with this passage. And I've been looking forward to it because the Lord's Supper is the very heart of corporate worship. It is the heart of corporate worship. You know, as Protestants, we tend to think that that the sermon is uh, is at the heart of what we do. That the sermon is uh, the climax of corporate worship. And largely, this is due to, uh, historically, this is due to the reformers moving the pulpit from the side of the sanctuary to the middle of the sanctuary in order to emphasize the centrality of preaching and the centrality of the Word of God. And they were right to do so. I'm not saying that they were wrong. They were right to do so. You see, because many of you know, if you know your history, the Reformers all came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And in Roman Catholicism, the pulpit is off to the side. Because what's at the center of the sanctuary is the Mass, right? The Eucharist. That's, that's the very heart and the very core and the very apex and the climax. And that's, that's what everything revolves around in Roman Catholicism, as Luther often called it, the, uh, the, the sacrifice of the bloody mass. The reformers moved the pulpit from the side to the middle in order to emphasize the centrality of God's Word. And understandably so, right? One of the tenets of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture is the Word of God. Scripture is the highest authority within the church, and it is the very Word of God. And so the Reformers were right to do that. However, the negative impact that that has had historically on the church is that many Protestant churches begin to underemphasize the Lord's Supper. We're going to emphasize the centrality of preaching and the centrality of God's Word. Well, then maybe the Lord's Supper is really not as important as we used to think. And so we won't do it every week, and maybe just once a month, and maybe just once a quarter. And maybe we'll just do it at an evening service once a quarter or bi-annually. And that's unfortunate. Because while the central focus of corporate worship should be the preached word, the central focus of corporate worship should be the preached word, the climax, the apex of corporate worship is the Lord's Supper. It is the sacrament or the Lord's Supper. Everything is driving toward that moment. Because in the Lord's Supper, we are supping with Christ. 
We are sitting down once again, reenacting, if you will, sitting down at the Lord's table, and we are supping with Christ, and we are taking Him in, in a very real and very spiritual sense. It's why we put it at the end. Because everything we do is preparing us for that moment. All of the prayers, all of the scripture reading, the reading of the law, the assurance of pardon, the confessing of our sins, and even the sermon that is delivered is all preparing our hearts and our minds for the taking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. There's a reason Paul spends so much time on the Lord's Supper. Keep in mind that on the Lord's Supper, Paul goes from verse 17 of this chapter all the way to the end of the chapter. That is a significant amount of writing on the Lord's Supper. 18 verses, 400 words. Paul is dealing with the Lord's Supper. How they are not taking it appropriately. How they should be taking it appropriately. Nowhere else does Paul ever say... In fact, nowhere else do we see this in the Bible, that because Christians are doing other things inappropriately, that some are falling ill or some are dying. You know, Paul doesn't say that, you know, what we just finished going over, look, that because you're not using head coverings in church right, some are falling ill and some are dying. He doesn't say later when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14 that because you're abusing and misusing the gifts of the Spirit that some are falling ill or some are dying. We don't see anywhere else in the New Testament that because you're not properly using baptism or baptizing the right people that some are falling ill or some are dying. But he says that about the Lord's Supper. We'll look at that next week in verses 27 and following. The Lord's Supper is the apex. It is the climax of what we do in corporate worship. This is because the Lord's Supper keenly reminds us of Christ's death, burial, and His resurrection. And what we do in corporate worship... Yea, what the entire Christian life is supposed to be about is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The entire Christian life is to revolve around Christ and Him crucified. Everything that we do in corporate worship should ultimately revolve around and point us toward Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul says in his book. He started the book that way back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He said, I didn't come to you with impressive language, with impressive oratory skills, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says it's all about the cross of Christ. <clears throat> and this is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. It reminds us that everything we do here ultimately points us toward Christ and Him crucified. Now that is not to say, that is not to say that we should only preach the gospel and avoid controversy. That's another mistake that many Protestant churches have made throughout the centuries. 
Just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. I have uh, known many Christians who grew up in those kind of churches. And they said after a while, they began to say to themselves, Okay, I need to be saved. I get that. I'm saved, but now what? In the end, we are to preach the whole counsel of God. Everything we do and teach should ultimately point us to Christ and Him crucified, but that does not mean that everything we preach is about Christ and Him crucified. But now before I uh, get into this text, a couple of things that I want to uh, touch on and remind you of. First is that uh, we're going to be dealing with one of two signs and seals given to the church. And I've used those phrases, those, those words before. I sent out a, an article. Hopefully you all had a chance to read over it. I think it's important. Uh, because historically, at least within Roman, within Reformed theology, within Reformed theology, we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper as being signs and seals of the New Covenant. What do we mean by that? Well, by that we mean that a sign is something that points us towards something, right? That's what signs do. When you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says detour with an arrow, it is pointing you towards something, mainly the way to get around what it is you're trying to get around. When you're on the highway, you see a sign that says, you know, exit to go to, you know, Corpus Christi Beach or whatever the case may be. That's a sign that is pointing you in the right direction and is pointing you towards something. Thus, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a sign in that it points us back toward the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is a sign in that sense. We also use the word seal. That baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs and seals of the new covenant. And in biblical times, in the first century world, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, seals were used to remind us of the authenticity of that which is signified. Uh, in other words, when a king or an official would send an important letter or a document, he would oftentimes close it and put some wax on it, and then he would seal it with his own stamp, his own signet. And the person that received it on the other end would see that seal and that would know this actually came from the king. Right? So the seal signified the authenticity of who wrote this letter. So what baptism and the Lord's Supper do, they act as seals to authenticate the promises of God. Because ultimately, the baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us of the promises of God. They remind us of His faithfulness. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper act as seals to remind us that these things are true. That God is faithful to His promises and to His word. Every covenant that God makes uh, in the Bible, all seven covenants, if you study the covenants made throughout redemptive history, are all accompanied with a sign and a seal given to the individual with whom God is making that covenant with. The new covenant is unique in that it is the only covenant that is accompanied with two signs and seals. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Historically, baptism 
is called the rite of initiation. Rite, R-I-T-E, in terms of a ceremony, not R-I-G-H-T. Baptism is the rite of initiation, and the Lord's Supper is the rite of remembrance. Baptism symbolizes it is a, a ceremonial practice of being brought into the covenant community, and then we partake of the Lord's Supper regularly as a rite, as a religious ceremony of reminding us how we got into the covenant community. And so now with that, let's look at our text. In verse 23, Scripture says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And let me just stop right there. Because when Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, what does Paul mean by that? I think clearly what he means is that he received his instruction from the apostle. Because if you're familiar with Paul's conversion story, right, he's converted on the road to Damascus by a vision of the resurrected Christ. After that, he goes out into the wilderness for three years. Nobody knows what he did out there for three years. There's a lot of speculation, I personally think. He was basically putting himself through an entire retraining program of his theology regarding God. After his Damascus Road experience, he had to go somewhere and open up all of the Old Testament scriptures and rethink through Christ and him being the Messiah and how he was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament. But then after that, we're told that he then immediately goes to Jerusalem and he visits with the apostles, with Peter, James, and John. And undoubtedly, they would have explained to him the importance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That was huge in the mind of the apostles when Christ instituted uh, the Lord's Supper at the Passover feast. And so Paul says, I received from the Lord. And he words it that way because he understands that anything that is taught or communicated by the apostles comes from the Lord. Because the apostles speak authoritatively on behalf of God. They also wrote authoritatively on behalf of God. So when we read the Bibles, we are receiving instruction from the Lord. And we often, too often, we, we forget that. I saw a meme on a, a Facebook recently, and no, I do not develop my theology from Facebook memes. But, uh, but I thought it was humorous and quite accurate, and it showed a picture of one person saying, you know, I wish God uh, spoke to us the way that he spoke to people in the, uh, in the New Testament times. And another person says, he does. Read your Bible. And then the person says, no, but I wish that he spoke to us out loud. And the other person said, he does. Read your Bible out loud. Because when we read the Bible, we are reading the very word of God. This is God speaking to us. And if we kept that in mind more often, I think we would want to spend time in God's word more often than many of us do. 
And so Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Paul reminds him that Christ inaugurated the Lord's Supper when the saints were gathered together for corporate worship. The Passover, which was a worship event. They were celebrating the Passover. It was a time of singing psalms from the Old Testament, a time of many uh, offering prayers, of reading scripture, recounting God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And it is worth noting that Paul assumes that they are gathering weekly for worship. The Lord's Supper was instituted when the saints were gathered for worship. And he assumes that they continue to partake of the Lord's Supper when they gather weekly for worship. We see in back, back in verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church. So he's assuming that they come together regularly as a church, and then he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper. He assumes this is what they are doing when they gather every Lord's Day. He'll say that again in, in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. When you come together, he assumes this is something that they are and should be doing on a weekly basis. He clearly states that in chapter 16, verse 1. Regarding the collection of tithes and offerings. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia. So you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. On the first day of the Lord's day. When you come together for the Lord's supper. You ought to also be putting aside something as well in terms of tithes and offering. This is because this was the practice of the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. But notice, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. That breaking bread is the New Testament phrase for the Lord's Supper. They would gather together on the first day of the week to break bread. Thus, in following the pattern of the New Testament church, the Lord's Supper, I believe, should be taken whenever the saints gather on the Lord's Day for corporate worship. Now, granted, this is not commanded in the New Testament, but if this was the practice of the New Testament church, to me it seems a bit arrogant to think that we know better than they. It seems wise to follow in the footsteps and in the example of the New Testament church. Now this is not to say that occasional exceptions cannot be made or that it is sinful to take the Lord's Supper on some other day, such as during our Monday, Thursday worship service. Or that a church is sinning if they only take it once a month. But again, it seems wise to follow in the footsteps and in the example that has been left to us by the New Testament church. The other thing that's important to note from verse 23 is the manner in which Christ inaugurates the Lord's Supper. He links the new covenant 
and the sign and seal of the new covenant back to the Old Testament. Because he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. The New Testament church and the church in Corinth would have understood that the night in which he was betrayed was the night of the Passover meal, which is tremendously significant. Because if you remember your Old Testament story, right, the Passover meal came about because of how God delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. He commands them on that the, before the, the, the coming of the tenth and final plague, to take a lamb, to completely roast it whole, right, and to eat all of it, to leave nothing until morning, eat all of it with bitter, uh, with bitter herbs and, and spices, and to, to eat it with unleavened bread, and then to take the blood of the lamb and to, to, to dip hyssop, uh, into it and to smear it over the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel came across at midnight, wherever the blood, wherever they were covered with the blood of the lamb, that household would be spared. Thereafter, that became an annual celebration and it marked the beginning of the Hebrew calendar. It marked the beginning of the Jewish year. And they would take the Passover uh, every uh, every year on that same that same week. Now that was not a sign and seal in the Old Testament. It was a, a celebration. It was something that they were commanded to do, but was not a sign or seal of any of the covenant. But Jesus takes what is a what is arguably one of the most significant holidays in the Jewish year that reminded the Israelites of the day in which God delivered them out of slavery, he takes that event and makes it the sign and seal of the new covenant. Thus linking the new covenant community with believing Israelites in the Old Testament. There is this continuity between the old and the new. Now, at the time of the Passover, the Jews likely did not understand why God had chosen to deliver them that way. You know, why, why a lamb? Why, you know, slaughter it and smear the blood and roast it and eat? I mean, is all of this really necessary? Uh, but soon they would come to understand it, especially once the sacrificial system in the priesthood was uh, established. They would understand that uh, that as that as that all of that pointed forward to the sacrificial system, all of that pointed forward to the priesthood, all of that pointed forward to the temple that would be established. But so also at the time of the Lord's Supper, the disciples likely did not fully understand what Jesus was doing. This is my body which is given for you. What does he mean by that? This is my blood that is poured out for you. What does he mean by that? Of course, post-resurrection and post-ascension, they would fully understand the words of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. But Christ intentionally uses a rite that was tied to the Old Testament people of God, their deliverance from Egypt, and the covenant of law as a sign and seal of the new covenant. 
This has tremendous implications for the Lord's Supper. I'll give you three. First of all, that the Jews were to celebrate the Passover annually was to remind them of God's deliverance. The Lord's Supper does the same for us. That's part of why we do it. Every time we take it, it reminds us of our deliverance out of slavery, the slavery of sin and death and the, the burden of the law. It reminds us that the only reason we are able to gather here, that we are able to worship God, the only reason we know God and have a relationship with God is because of what Christ has done for us 2,000 years ago. Secondly, that the Israelites were required to eat the entire Passover lamb with unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine serves to remind us in the Lord's Supper that we are also to fully consume Christ. That's part of what I think Jesus was talking about in John chapter 6 when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life in you. Of course, they were all completely confused by his language. But the idea is that we need to be feeding on Christ daily in our souls. It is necessary that we feed on Christ, that we derive our sustenance and our life and our strength from Christ himself. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that every week. And thirdly, that the Passover meal is so closely connected to the covenant of law at Mount Sinai, which was to be read entirely every seven years as an act of covenant renewal. And when I say that it's closely related to the covenant of law, remember, they have the Passover. They come out of Egypt. Three weeks later, they're at Mount Sinai, and there's the giving of the law. These two things are closely related in the Israelite mind. Deliverance from Egypt, the Passover, and the giving of the law. And every seven years they were to read the entire law as a form of covenant renewal. And every year they would take the Passover as a way of reminding them of the covenant that they have entered into. The point is that when we take the Lord's Supper, it should serve the same effect. It is a means of covenant renewal with God. Every Sunday, in essence, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are saying to God, I remember the covenant. I remember that you have brought me into a covenant relationship with you, and I will strive to be faithful to the covenant that you have brought me into. Verse 24, Paul goes on to say, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what did Jesus mean by these words? This is my body. There's a lot of debate on that and what he means. Since about the ninth century, the church in Rome has held to the doctrine of transubstantiation which they essentially argue that the body, the bread and the wine are literally transformed into the very flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. It is actually his flesh and blood. 
It may taste like bread and look like bread and feel like bread, but they will argue that it is not. It is not bread and it is not wine. It is the actual body and blood of Christ because that's what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. The reformers, of course, took issue with that. And uh, because Luther rightly understood that what that meant and what it means even today is that every Sunday in every, in every Roman Catholic church around the world, they are re-sacrificing Christ. That's why they call it the Mass. They are re-sacrificing Christ on the altar every Sunday. And Luther thought that makes no sense. There was only one sacrifice at Calvary. Christ does not need to be re-sacrificed every Sunday in every church. So Luther taught a doctrine that has come to be known as consubstantiation, where he said that we are eating Christ, that when Jesus says, this is my body, he meant that. He's trying to be faithful to the words. But Luther argued that the bread is not transformed in any way. It is still bread, and it is still wine. But somehow, Jesus is in the bread, and he is in the wine, and we are consuming Christ, and we are drinking his blood, but he's not being re-sacrificed. But we are eating his body and drinking his blood. It was a mystery to Luther. He says, for example, and I quote, For my part, if I cannot fathom how the bread is the body of Christ, yet I will take my reason captive to the obedience of Christ and clinging simply to his words, firmly believe not only that the body of Christ is in the bread, but that the bread is the body of Christ. Close quote. So you got to credit Luther with just trying to be faithful to the words of Scripture. Other reformers had trouble with that. Another reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, who was leading the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland, uh, basically adopts what has come to be known as the symbolic view, which is held by many of your typical traditional uh, Baptist uh, churches though not in Reformed Baptist churches. And Zwingli argued that the Lord's Supper is simply symbolic. It's just a picture. When Jesus said, this is my body, it's like showing someone a, a, a picture of your children and saying, these are my kids. Well, you're not saying this photo is my kids, that this piece of paper, that this is actually my kids. Right? When you say, this is, this is, these are my children, when you say, this is my wife or this is my husband, you're saying that this is a, a representation of my children. This is a picture of my children, but I'm not actually married to this photo. Right? These children, this photo is not actually my child. And so Zwingli argued that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, that it's purely symbolic. The Lord's Supper simply reminds us of something that Jesus did, and, that, and that's all there is to it. So he really removed all of the spiritual elements from it. John Calvin argued for somewhat of a middle ground between Luther and Zwingli. Calvin's view has come to be known as the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. It's a view that I, I hold to. I think Calvin was correct. And Calvin argued that in some way, Christ is present in the elements in a spiritual sense. The body, the, the bread and the wine do not become Jesus in any way, 
And so there he disagreed with Luther. This, this is not actually Jesus we're holding. Disagreed with Luther in that sense. But he disagreed with Zwingli in that it's got to be more than just symbolic. Because of the heavy warnings that come with it. This is a serious and weighty matter. And because of various passages of Scripture that we see, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Scripture says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. When we drink the cup, we are in some way actually participating in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So Calvin argued that in some sense, in a spiritual yet very real way, we are actually supping with the resurrected Christ. In a spiritual yet very real way, we are taking Christ in as we partake in the Lord's Supper. But Jesus doesn't become the bread or the wine in any way. Calvin was correct. This is my body in some sense does mean this is my body. But the fact that he talked about it, that it happens in a spiritual but very real sense, doesn't make it any less real. Just because something happens in a spiritual sense or in a spiritual dimension or in a spiritual realm does not make it less real than you or I. Demons are spiritual, yet they are real. Angels are spiritual, yet they are real. God is spirit, yet God is real. The Holy Spirit is spirit. We cannot see him. He is not tangible, but he is just as real as you and I. And thus, we take in Christ and we sup with Christ in a spiritual yet very real way. For these reasons, Paul offers strong warnings that he will we'll look at more closely next week when we partake in the Lord's Supper. But then he says in verse 25, <clears throat> In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ establishes the Lord's Supper as the sign and seal of the new covenant. He actually uses those words in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. This blood, this cup, is the blood, is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you, he says. The disciples would have immediately understood, they would have heard the echoing of Jeremiah 31 in the words of Christ. Jeremiah 31, you can go back and read that on your own, beginning in verse 31. There, Jeremiah prophesies regarding the new covenant that the Messiah would someday establish with his people. That no longer will they say, know the Lord, because every one of them will know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I will write my law upon their hearts, and they will all know me. 
Everybody who is brought into the new covenant community, according to Jeremiah 31, will know God on a personal and intimate relationship. And the law of God will no longer be external, but it will be internal. It will be written on our hearts. We will actually have a desire to want to live in obedience to the word of God. And in the instituting of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is telling the disciples, that I am hereby inaugurating the new covenant prophesied about hundreds of years earlier by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. The Jews looked forward to the day when this new covenant would be established, when God would remember their sins no more. Yet sadly, most of them never experienced that because they rejected the Messiah. The Messiah finally comes to inaugurate the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 to fulfill the purpose of the sacrificial system and ultimately to do away with it because their sins would be remembered no more by a once for all sacrifice by the ultimate Lamb of God. They looked forward to that day and most of them we're not able to see it. At the end of verse 25, he then says, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. From these words, we understand that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper regularly. Do this as often as you partake of it in remembrance of me. That kind of language implies this is not a one-time deal. This is something that we ought to be doing regularly. The question that is often debated is just how often. The Bible never explicitly commands how often we ought to. Thus, we simply follow the tradition of the New Testament church. But then Paul adds an additional reason as to why we should take the Lord's Supper regularly in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For, for as often, this is what you do. It is explanatory. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation. It is a proclamation regarding the atoning work of Christ, which is the gospel. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the gospel to ourselves and to the world. If they are watching, if we have unbelievers who are coming in and seeing what we are doing. In this way, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It is a means of grace to us in that it is a sign and seal of Christ and his benefits to us. The Lord's Supper reminds us every week. It's one of the reasons I look forward to church and the Lord's Supper in particular. Because the Lord's Supper reminds us every week that after a long week of blowing it. After a long week of sinning against God, of sinning against our neighbor, of sinning against our spouse, against our children, and against our friends, the Lord's Supper reminds us that you are forgiven. 
You are atoned for. You are redeemed. Because Christ has done it all for you. Your sins are absolved. That's a great word. Your sins are absolved. That's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of every single week. That no matter how imperfect you are, Christ has made you perfect by his imputed righteousness that you are cloaked in and by his atoning sacrifice that hide your sins from God, from a holy and just God. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the new covenant and thus is only open to those who are inside the new covenant community. It is open only open to those who are within the invisible church. For that reason, the Lord's Supper is only open to believers. Unbelievers who partake of the Lord's Supper, according to Paul in the following verses that we'll look at next week, unbelievers who partake of the Lord's Supper are literally drinking God's judgment and wrath upon themselves. And you can't fool God. You can pretend to live the Christian life. You can say all the right words, but you can't fool God. That's why I say every week, parents, please monitor your children. If in your mind, don't be worried about hurting little Johnny's feelings either. If in your mind you are not convinced of your child's salvation, do them a favor. Don't let them take the sacrament because they are simply making hotter, hell hotter for themselves if they are taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday and are not truly striving to live in obedience to the Word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, as we prepare to uh, partake in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for your amazing grace and goodness. We thank you for being the sacrificial lamb on behalf of your people. And we pray, Lord, that the Lord's Supper would remind us every week, not only of what you have done for us, but as we partake in the Lord's Supper as a as an act of covenant renewal, that it would remind us of our duty to be faithful to the covenant, to be faithful to all that you have commanded us to do, and that we would depart from this place with a greater zeal, a greater desire to live in obedience to the word of God for your glory, for your praise, and for your honor. We pray that the Lord's Supper would remind us that in light of all that Christ has done for us, what should we be willing to do for Him? And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.